0: Hey, welcome to Current Yield, the Grant's Interest Rate Observer uh, podcast. And uh, good to have you back. I'm uh, Jim Grant. And with me, uh, as always, uh, is Eric Whitehead at the uh, control panel. He's our technician. And the great Evan Lorenz sitting directly across from me. And today, our special guest is uh, Dean Cornett, who knows all about volatility and things that uh, go up and down. He's not about peace and quiet. Dean is about action. I'm not sure where you are, but today around here is kind of an active day. My favorite credential is that uh, you are a very man- MBA from the University of Chicago and that at Chicago you walked away with a Citibank award for the best performance in finance. Now, okay, I'm a, a long time, somewhat I'm pecksniffian critic of the Citibank but I would have guessed that the Citibank award is accorded to the person who comes in last in finance. That's you're funny. Not, you're not going to bite the hand that it feeds you though, are you?
1: It's funny you say that I recall quite vividly because I was over the moon thrilled with getting that award, uh, which was in 1995 and they gave me $5,000. And it was a tremendous amount for me. Well, still, uh, but it, little it, it did is, I know, uh, they would need that $5,000 uh, just it, it uh, 14 have, years it, later.
0: It, it might have kept them out of the clutches of right. the government, don't exactly. you think? Possibly. Dean, so Dean, you are the uh, the founder and the CEO of Macro Risk Advisors. And um, you're in the business of anticipating things that people would rather not have happen, right? That's true. Okay. Uh, but both the upside and the downside, right? So you are uh, ecumenically interested in things that move. Yes. All right. So... Uh, We have lived through periods of preternaturally quiet, right? I mean, it has been so quiet, you could have heard a stock drop. Have things changed?
1: I think things are in the process of changing, for sure. You know, Jim, I came on, this is my second podcast, so thank you very much for having me back. When I was last here, we were in one of those epic periods of quiet. We set a lot of records last year in 2017 with respect to market calm. Uh, one stat I'll just throw at you is uh, the, the VIX closed below 10, 52 times in 2017. The and as low That
0: must as, include some Sundays, right? Because
1: that's a lot. It's not even counting the Saturdays and Sundays. <laughs> but what was really remarkable about 2017 was not just the low VIX, it was the lack of day-to-day swings in the S&P. It resulted in a, in a realized volatility for the entire year of 6.5%. You've got to go all the way back to uh, the early 60s to see something as uh, stable as that. And the thing about quiet is that it has its own set of repercussions. It invites certain kinds of trades. But
0: you've also observed, Dean, that uh, that, uh, volatility is a good leading indicator of volatility. What is quiet will tend to remain quiet and vice versa, though.
1: Yes, that's right. I like to say that uh, vol has some memory to it, uh, which means that the best guess about uh, volatility tomorrow is how volatile today is. There tends to be uh, a sequencing where the market gets itself into a period of either strong stability or when things start to heat up, it tends to be the case that uh, volatility begets more volatility. And and to your previous question, we're certainly in at least potentially one of those transition phases where it appears that the market is trying to adjust to what could be a considerably higher level of of volatility.
0: Now, Dean, you gave a really Good talk at the Spring Grants Conference. This was back in April, and in it you propose that the uh, stock bond relationship might well undergo a change that people have been so used to. You know, stocks going up and uh, bond prices going down. Right. Right. Who's to say that was forever? And that perhaps we might reach a period in which uh, interest rates rose and stock prices fell. That's right. And that seems is that. Uh, the new thing is that the new regime.
1: Well, we'll we'll see. You know, you, you've uh, studied a, a lot of financial history, and uh, in, in the prior period, uh, let's let's just call it pre two thousand pre two thousand. It used to be the case that uh, th- the Fed was the factor to end uh, a risk cycle by virtue of pulling away the punch bowl and raising interest rates. That was the signal for risk assets to start to fall, and then we went uh, into this, and, and so that expressed itself as a very na- positive of correlation between stock prices and bond yields. We went into this risk on regime, which lasted a long, long time and seemed to, over the course of the extraordinary uh, monetary policy that the Fed pursued, it seemed to actually become more ingrained in terms of the relationships that we see each day. It became more ingrained in market psyche uh, as well. What I spoke to your audience about at your your April conference was a hedging trade that I saw that I found to be a particularly attractive trade, not because I had a strong view that this was going to happen, but that the price of it was exceptionally cheap by virtue of how derivatives are priced. And specifically, in normal risk-on-risk-off times, when stock prices fall, bond yields fall as well. That is the correlation. And and that correlation gets fed into this exotic option pricing model that Wall Street uh, uses, and it cheapens the price substantially for a trade in which you're willing to bet that stock prices fall and bond yields actually rise. It's, so are
0: these, are these models all programmed by people who are 24, 25? I mean, is there no more distant memory than three or four or five years ago? They
1: may be older than 25, but they only look back uh, on data that's five years old. So
2: they could be older, but the the window of data that they're using does not contemplate the old regime. So there's no Great Recession. There's no financial collapse. There's no blow up. Everything's just smooth sailing.
0: second. Ignoring the panic of 1907,
2: <laughs> I don't think they uh, the Bloomberg has that
1: in there. Yeah.
0: Well, uh, Dean, tell us about um, about other markets. You are a student of many markets. Do you have any thoughts on uh, I don't know gold bullion? Yes. Just a name. I, I just picked it out of the air.
1: I knew you would. Uh, so gold is. Um, I'm very interested in gold volatility in the sense that I remember with I remember quite closely the way in which gold behaved during the sovereign debt crisis and perhaps it was is just the good timing, but gold became a very much an anti-S&P, uh, the-, the no, which
0: sovereign debt crisis was? Uh,
1: so the, the, I'm sorry, the European sovereign debt crisis ah. in 2011. Yep. So there was a couple of things happening at once. Uh, there was the US default showdown, you know, nicely engineered by the Democrats and the Republicans, uh, where they brought us to the brink. And then there was the sovereign crisis was really starting to intensify. And the, the negative correlation between gold and the and S&P during a relatively short window was quite sharp. And gold rallied substantially and gold volatility as it rallied went up enormously. Over time, the correlation between gold and S&P has been somewhat negative, and that makes it a diversifying asset. What I'm picking up on recently is over the last couple of weeks is a somewhat of a return, and it may be too short-lived to make a strong call here, but the correlation, the negative correlation between gold and and the S&P has started to reassert itself. That to me is a sign uh, of market confusion. Uh, It's a sign of nervousness. And when I look at options on gold, I see some very, very cheap options.
0: I do tell. Which ones?
1: Well, I I just, the the surface of options. So if I look across time, so different expirations, and I look across different strike prices, I'm able to buy options with an implied volatility of 10 or 11. That's a pretty good deal. You can buy a lot of options when vol is that low. Again, just for comparative purposes, the VIX is up here, again, around 20 uh, or so. So to be able to, um, now, why are gold options cheap? Well, the reality is that gold has not had a lot of volatility this year. Um, I think folks have kind of given up on it as a hedge. It was particularly disappointing in uh, during the VIX event of earlier this year to see gold be very non-reactive. So if you had that as a hedge, you saw very little follow-through, both in volatility space and also the, the spot price. Uh, so, so folks have sort of abandoned it a little bit. The open interest in gold options is not very high. And there's a lot of retail selling of gold options, and I think that's actually what's causing the volatility to to be depressed. So I see opportunity there.
0: Dean, speaking of uh, volatility and of the February event, do you see anything like it on the horizon now?
1: So February was very unique, and just so a couple of things to comment on. One, let's
0: let's refresh people's memory on what happened.
1: Wow. It uh, was something else. It is the uh, poster child for a product, a derivative product that runs amok. This ETF complex built around the VIX was one in which investors were able to actually, if you think about this, buy a stock, which really it's an equity called the XIV. And this stock doesn't have a business outside of selling VIX futures. So, the. the Everyone's comp-
0: got to make a living, though, Dean, doing it, something.
1: It made a fine living selling VIX futures because of 2017. Yeah. Volatility was so low, the payoff to being long this stock called the XIV, again, it's just a, a mechanism to sell volatility expressed in an ETF. The performance, the Sharp ratio for the XIV was on the order of four or five in 2017, as it so was it for
0: So, it just went up and up and up,
1: right? It, it benefited. Uh, substantially from the incredibly low level of realized volatility. Uh, So what happens? A good trade attracts people's interest and people see something going up and more and more capital flowed into this uh, VIX ETF and it got larger and larger and larger. And so when the volatility started in, it was probably started the last week in January, interest rates were rising then. And again, that negative correlation between stock prices and uh, bond prices flipped to positive. So people got very worried and the market started to fall. This VIX ETF, because it was so large, had a substantial amount of rehedging to do. And this is why these amplifying products we have to pay attention to. The VIX complex has to buy VIX futures as volatility is rising. Very dangerous. It's very pro-cyclical. And because this XIV had so much capital in it, the amount of VIX futures that it had to buy, it literally chased the VIX higher and higher and tried to jam through in 15 minutes on February 5th, a hedging program that just was unachievable outside of driving the VIX up and making the VIX effectively double in one day. Uh, And that made this product go to zero and it created some chaos around the system. That was unique. That's not here right now. So the VIX complex is a uh, a small fraction of its former self. And I would argue actually that if the same volatility occurred, if Wednesday occurred, which was a almost 4% down move, if you include the Futures uh, in in S and P with the VIX complex being as large now as it was then, you'd have the same action. So it's good that that's not around, it takes away from some of the volatility.
2: But you still have a lot of funds that are essentially betting on correlations and and selling effectively volatility. The 60-40 uh, allocation of, you know, to uh, sto- uh, stocks and bonds bets that stocks and bonds will move in opposite directions. And as um, you know, one appreciates, they buy more of the other. You also have risk parity. You, you still have a lot of capital in these strategies. They're not as kind of levered and as exotic as the XIV might have been, but there's still a lot of capital out there doing similar things. It's, it's, it's a great point, and I
1: think this is some of what's happening right now. If you step back, there's always news and things to worry about. It's hard You'd be hard not to worry about inflation or oil prices or the geopolitical cycle, but there really is an absence of news relative to the volatility that uh, has been set upon the market in the last week or so. And uh, what I and others would argue is that underneath the surface of the markets, there are these funds that take as an input into the sizing of their positions volatility. So when volatility goes up, they are are programmatically forced to de-risk to sell. And some of these funds have gotten quite substantial in size. I do think it's difficult to know exactly how much the market's getting pushed around by these funds. But Evan, as you know, there's risk parity funds. There are CTA trend-following funds that just get long the trend. The trend was up, so you get really long it. And then when the trend changes, you get out. And then there's this other class of funds called vol control. Uh, No one knows exactly how big these things are or exactly what their reaction function is. But I'll give you the broad strokes. The IMF estimated that they have about 500 billion under management. This is an insurance company type product where they are long the S&P trying to control for a certain level of volatility. And what they do is when volatility is too low, it's below their target, they gear up a little bit. They use a little bit of leverage to get back up to the target that they're trying to deliver. When volatility suddenly spikes, they are forced to de-risk because now they're above their target. And so what the market is most vulnerable to is a sudden increase in realized volatility. And and that's really what we have, that's come with Realized
0: volatility, meaning the uh, the chop that actually happens in the market as opposed to that, which is being gamed by the players uh, investing in volatility.
1: Yes. And l- let's just take the two months leading into last Wednesday, uh, relative to last Wednesday, the market was moving on about 40 basis points per day on average. That's about a 7% realized volatility. It's It rivals the quiet from 2017. Very quiet summer, uh, you know, into September still very quiet, and then suddenly in one day we had almost ten times that amount. So we were moving about 40 basis points a day, and then if you include the the move down in futures all the way to the 4:15 close, we moved almost four percent. So we had a ten times the daily move that we were experiencing, and there's just absolutely no plausible explanation for that. It is a market that it almost turns on itself. It, the de-risking is caused by a spike in volatility, and then the de-risking feeds back in and it exacerbates the increase in volatility.
0: What's the, what's the theory of these funds that treat volatility as if it were a risk? It's a great point. It's not uh, risk, is it?
1: I think what they've tried to do, and, and, and you know, I'm sure you're a student of financial history and what was more interesting than the 1987 crash, going into one of the events that we hosted last year in the 30th anniversary of the crash, I did some review
0: of, of, you of a, the- Corey, You had a birthday party? What's that? You had a birthday party had, for the crash. I had a birthday party. We'll yeah. get back to that in a second because that's a very interesting psychological insight. Dean. So go ahead. <laughs> so the
1: whole concept of portfolio insurance, right, with the crash, what were people trying to manufacture? They're trying to manufacture a hedge but not pay for it. And I'm here to say that just it doesn't exist. It would be antithetical to just anything that's- To your
0: business model. <laughs> right? so to a business
1: model. <laughs> Model, but just to the reality <laughs> yeah, right. that you just can't get something for free. That's what markets are about. And what did what did people become convinced of in two, in 1987 is that you could sell more and more futures on the way down in a, in a dynamic hedging strategy. And no one else would do it. And no one else would do it. And and, and, and that, of course, is the issue, is that the size of the program uh, that uh, so Leland O'Brien Rubinstein that they had under management was substantially large at that time relative to to what the markets could bear. And that's I think this is a this is the question. Are these strategies impactful back into the market in in terms of a in terms of a feedback loop? And that's it's a concern.
0: Yeah, yeah. Getting back to anniversaries. Dean, you are a keen student and uh keen to mark anniversaries and financial events. And tell us about uh, how you mark the anniversary of the crash, 30th anniversary of the crash. Well, so
1: so last year we have a an, an annual event uh for clients and uh, I was giving a presentation, and I was lucky enough to have you speak at our second annual Volatility Roundtable dinner uh, in 2010. So 2017 was our 10th uh, annual dinner, a special one, and it was on the date of the crash, right. the 30th anniversary right. of the crash. And I okay. thought what was so interesting, one, was to just do some work on on the crash, but also to, to distinguish the price of volatility in the market at the time which was October of 2017 relative to the first dinner that I had, which was October 2008. In October 2008, the price of a one month straddle on the S&P 500 was 16.5% of the spot of the S&P, 70% implied volatility, and then fast forward to 2017 and and that same straddle cost 1.5% of the spot price. So again, what that implies is all you needed to happen over the next month was for the S&P to go up up or down 1.5%. It's a remarkably thin break-even level. But back to your earlier point, we see these vol periods sort of self-reinforce uh, both on the downside and the upside, and we were on the downside.
0: You know, you know we we had agreed just a few moments ago that uh, volatility is a kind of leading indicator of volatility, except the accumulation of quiet periods seems to constitute kind of a coiled spring for very dramatic periods, no? In, I, I, the I, the I, Hyman-Minsky thesis. I,
1: I couldn't uh, agree more with Minsky. It's, I think, a brilliant framework. And I also think it's there's a similarity to Soros' framework on reflexivity. And there's nothing more reflexive than volatility. Yeah.
0: We're going to pause here just one moment to uh, have a friendly word from uh, ZipRecruiter, our very loyal and fine sponsor has a question for you. And the question is this, do you know what's not smart? Well, job sites that overwhelm you with tons of the wrong resumes, but you know what is smart? Well, ziprecruiter.com slash grant. That's just genius. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't wait for candidates to find you. ZipRecruiter finds them for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. No more sorting through the wrong resumes. No more waiting for the right candidates to apply. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the US. That rating comes from uh, hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. Right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address: at ZipRecruiter.com/grant. That's ZipRecruiter.com/grant. ZipRecruiter.com slash grant. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Dean Cornett, I have in front of me a, uh, a very interesting piece of analysis you have put out. Stocks across a range of cyclical industries in the U.S. have weakened sharply in recent months. Uh, this is the most worrisome and directly relevant data point, in our view, A sampling of these stocks is provided here. Okay, so among these... Uh,
2: oh, th- that's not Dean's report, that's uh, somebody else's report.
0: Ah, Wait, wait, wait a second. Who said it was your report? <laughs> this is an impo- this is not your work. <laughs> However, the point might survive the exaggeration, or the, uh, the, it might survive the error. So the very learned authors of this particular report identify a succession of rolling industries, uh, that is to say, stocks rolling over. It's challenge cyclicals, they're called. And I, I might as well we don't even know whether they can name this outfit, do we? It,
2: it's, it's upslope capital. It, it's their quarterly letter. I thought it was an interesting observation. I mean,
0: well, it is, but do yeah. the upslope capital piece. That, do they mind being on our podcast? Um, They're he, probably he, honored, he, right? Unless,
2: he, he makes their letter available to anybody who asks. So, so I,
0: we're not going to hear from their lawyers, right? No. Okay. Upscale, Upscale capitalization. Upslope. Is upslope. <laughs> <laughs> we, ladies and gentlemen, we are at the very margin of having to go back and tape this whole thing over again. What do you think? Or do we go with spontaneity or do we go with carefully rehearsed? No, spontaneity, right? Okay. Upslope identifies housing like DR Horton and autos, GM and airlines, American Airlines, packaging, Paper Uh, wreck vehicles, Harley Day, banks, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, you take a look at these charts. All right. Now I'm going to pass the paper to Dean. What do you think? Does this speak in your mind to an opportunity? Is there an option suitable to uh, hedge against what appears to be a rethink of our cyclically strong economy? It's
1: uh, certainly, I I think there's information in looking at housing as an example, as a leading indicator. And if you just step back and you think about the, what are higher interest rates? Higher interest rates are a cost. I was just just was taking a look at, you take the, I think the Fannie Mae mortgage conforming limit is about 450000 So let's just say I make it 500000 and I take my 30-year mortgage and I use 4%, uh, which was about the beginning of the year versus say 5%, 100 basis points. That's on the order of about $300 per month. It's just not a small amount. I get it that we're in a very robust uh, economy from a unemployment, low unemployment standpoint and, and all the work that we do on the economy, the economy itself says things still look relatively good. I definitely, Believe that markets themselves are flashing some signs here that are divorced. They don't have to be related to the real economy side. The markets themselves are telling us something. And when again, you know, housing as an example, to me is an is an indicator of the pinch that's gonna come as these higher rates start to flow through.
0: Dean, you're in the business of looking around uh, a wide range of markets and trying to identify really cost-effective ways protecting against the uh, the so-called unexpected, which is actually ought not to be so unexpected, people just read the paper. But anyway, what do you see in the way of bargains out there in options or in strategies? Uh, even as you saw in the spring, you saw this opportunity in taking a bet on a change in the relationship between stocks and bonds. Anything else like that out there right, is compelling? So.
1: so- Another one of the trades that I recommended was similar to what they call the rate contingent put, which is the rate contingent put is I'm buying a, a put on the S&P, but it's contingent on higher mm-hmm. interest rates. The other one was the currency contingent put, the, in this case, the euro contingent. And so that hedge was buy a put on the S&P, but it's contingent on the euro falling. And again, that's a correlation trade as well. You're saving a substantial amount of premium to take the risk that the S&P can fall and the euro can go lower at the same time, and the correlations are... Are telling you the opposite. That's what gets fed into the model. That's what makes it cheap. Uh, as I mentioned, I think gold is something to actually take a very good look at. In general, uh, they're not giving away the VIX these days. You know, it's not, we're not in that 10 handle VIX anymore. We're in a 20 handle VIX. And so you've really gotta be careful because we know any one of these things takes a long time to actually materialize. And the risk is you get whipsawed and you've, you spend too much premium too early. And there is a risk, you know, in that sense. So in terms of designing trades, If you're going to be looking at things like um, the S&P 500, we've tended at this point to continue to use instead of outright puts to use things like put spreads. It's just a premium mitigation strategy. It doesn't have the same punch in terms of if you do get a big flush out in markets, your put spread is going to give you less than the put. But I I still think saving premium is important.
2: What about in fixed income? Um, You mentioned that the 100 basis point increase in mortgages has increased the monthly payment for a half a million mortgage by 300 bucks a month. If interest rates are increasing and bond um, bulls are right and it's going to choke off growth, then rates might go lower. And if I look at volatility, unlike the move, which is a, a measure of volatility on treasuries, it's still pretty low. Are there cheap options to say calamity happens and rates go lower? Absolutely. And, and again, uh, a third
1: trade I had in that deck on, uh, from uh, from my presentation at your April conference was to effectively do that, which is if things get really bad, what do we know? If they get bad enough, the Fed cycle is going to change, right? So the, the yield curve will bull steepen, meaning they'll they'll the front end, the shorter dated part of it, which is... Embeds successive tightening expectations from the Fed. That part of the curve is going to rally because, again, if things are bad enough, it's going to knock the Fed off course. The Fed would be crazy not to, right? If, if it'll be, something, it'll
0: be, it'll be loco. <laughs> it would be loco.
1: It may already be loco. So Evan, to your question, yeah, and, and your point on the move index, absolutely. Uh, that's a that's a good proxy for the cost of interest rate options. They're up a little bit, but still in the grand scheme of things, I think there's some very interesting things to do from a tail risk standpoint. Very unlikely to pay off. You know, our best guess should be that the Fed keeps going. But in a scenario in which things get truly, truly disrupted, the market will now take out those successive tightenings that are implied. And you'll see a pretty strong rally in things like two and in- three-year treasuries.
0: Dean, uh, uh, in conclusion, uh, first and foremost, uh, thank you, but in conclusion, uh, at the conference, uh, someone quoted Eric Severide, the uh, CBS commentator from yesteryear, and Er Eric Severide was quoted as saying, this is 1964, that uh, the business of America is actually not manufacturing autos or houses or putting on TV shows. It is rather conceiving, expressing, and disseminating anxiety in a way you're in the anxiety business. How is business?
1: Yeah, so we, uh, we're we definitely positively correlated to the VIX. So yeah, I like to say that vol, volatility and volume are pretty pretty correlated. And uh, what does an option, what is an option? At, at its core, an option is the right to change your mind, right? And uh, the right to change your mind becomes more valuable when things are moving more quickly. And, and so we certainly see more trading activity uh, when the VIX is up here.
0: Well, Dean, thank you for coming by. Dean is, is uh, as you know by now, I was the CEO of Macro Risk Advisors, uh, a friend of Grant's, and we like to think we're a friend of Dean's. So thank you for being here, Dean. Thank you so much. And ladies and gentlemen, until next time, thank you for being with Current Yield.